Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew that Douglas Wilson has a new book at Canon, Refuting the New Atheists, a Christian response to Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins. In Refuting the New Atheists, Doug shows that atheists stand on millennia of Christian culture and morality when they emphasize the problem of evil and that atheistic materialism cannot give any account of truth, beauty, or goodness. This book contains all three of Douglas Wilson's book-length responses to the New Atheists published for the first time in a single volume. You can get this book at canonpress.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 195. Hard to believe, right? 195. Particularly hard to believe if you've been uh, listening to these things from the beginning. That's years, man. So uh, the thing I wanted to talk about, the uh, timely issue of the day that I wanted to talk about, was uh, the the election audit in Maricopa uh, County, uh, Arizona. And I don't want to get into the ins and outs of, of the counting. Because I don't know enough about it, right? That's that's not the uh, that's not the area I wanted to, to address, because I don't know who's doing what. I don't know who's spying. I don't know anything. But the thing I'm interested in is the nature of the controversy that surrounds the audit or the recount. So here, this is um, zoom out, back up, and take a look at the mere fact of an audit or the mere fact of a recount. Let's and and uh, of course you have to understand that partisan politics will get into everything, but here's the nature of the controversy that I would have wanted to see, as opposed to the kind of controversy we do see. There is a dispute about whether there was cheating in Maricopa County, whether Donald Trump actually carried it, whether Arizona should have gone for uh, Biden or Trump, etc. All right, so there's there's recounting, and then beyond that, there's a full-scale audit where you check everything. You don't just recount the ballots. You don't just do everything over again the same way. You check the machines, you check everything, and, and so on. Now, um, with this um, kind of audit, it would seem to me that honest brokers, honest politicians on both sides could have a dispute about an audit that would go this way. Uh, when we set up the tables to examine all the ballots, one side saying, I think two high-resolution cameras taking a picture of each ballot would be uh, sufficient, and the other side saying, no, no, we need three high-resolution cameras. That's a disagreement. That's a dispute. Or uh, someone could say, we need... Um, Two observers uh, that are free to roam about this square footage in the counting area, and we need at least um, one observer from each political party, clearly marked with their identification, and da da. And somebody else saying, uh, "No, I think we need one from each political party, and we need an independent also." That would be the kind of dispute over whether or not the audit would be honest or not. But that's not the kind of dispute we find ourselves having. Uh, nothing says these elections were 
really fair and really above board and really great than full-pitched legal battles to keep anybody from uh, reviewing anything. So, so the issue is this. What about the battles since the election have served to reassure us that the process indeed was honest and above board? Well, this has been difficult because what we see happening is people saying that you are undermining our democracy if you bring up the mere possibility of cheating. If there was uh, cheating at all, and you say that, that there was a possibility of there being cheating at all, you are undermining faith in the process. You're undermining faith in, the, uh, in our le- electoral processes. Well, actually, the people who are undermining faith in it would be the people who shut down the counting in the middle of the night and have vote change lurches and all, all those sorts of things. That's not to say that when something looks fishy that there couldn't be a reasonable explanation, because there, there quite easily could be a reasonable explanation. But if when something looks fishy, when the counting in Georgia or the counting in Pennsylvania in, in key places shuts down in suspicious circumstances, and someone says, hey, aren't these circumstances sort of suspicious? And everybody starts yelling at that person like he's a moron, then that does not build confidence. A large percentage of the American public believes that there was more than a little bit of funny business in this last election. And every time there's a court challenge, every time there is a battle, every time there is a fight, over whether or not someone gets to review, that is not a good look. That's, not, that's just not good. So if someone said, we will not allow an audit to go forward in Arizona that isn't above board and televised and photographed and people hovering over, we, we want a completely transparent process in the audit. That's fair. That's good. That's honest. But if they say that's not possible, so we're just going to shut it down. There you go. So we're continuing with uh, the podcast, episode 195, and we come to our, our hamartiology section. So we're engaged in studying hamartiology, are we not? We come now to our next word, which is a hapax, occurring only one time in the New Testament. The word is delogos, and it is translated as double-tongued, D-I-L-O-G-O-S, delogos. And the place it occurs is in 1 Timothy 3.8, Timothy 3.8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. Our word, delogos, is the one that's underneath double-tongued, double-tongued. And you can see uh, uh, the compound word in the Greek, too, the, the di, di, referring to two, and logos referring to word. Logos is word, and legeo is to speak. Okay? So, dialogos is double-tongued. The sin is that of saying one thing in one place and quite a different thing when your audience is a different group. The word literally means a doubling of the word, splitting it up for different uses on different occasions. Now, we are familiar with the Indian expression, not the subcontinent, but Native Americans, uh, the Indian expression referring to someone who speaks with a forked tongue. Our proverbial expression for this zooms out a little bit 
encompassing the whole face. We say that someone is two-faced. If someone's two-faced, then they're one way here and they're another way there. And delagas refers to someone who's being that way in their speech. A good way to stay away from temptations to this sin would be to avoid situations or vocations, actually, where excuses are frequently called for. A debtor, for example, is tempted to make excuses to his creditor. And any businessman who is dependent on other services, as a contractor with his subs is, for example, will have temptations to make excuses by pointing to them. My sub didn't deliver on time. My subs didn't show up, etc. Now, sometimes that's what happened. You're not, you're not blaming the subs. You're not, uh, you're not making excuses. You're explaining what happened. But when you find yourself making excuses a lot, you're just two steps away from being double-tongued. It is an easy sin for otherwise honest people to drift into because you're dependent upon other people delivering, other people providing, other people showing up. And, and then when they don't and someone's looking at you like you are the problem, you blame them. But then in another situation where that same pressure is not on you, you um, might give a different account. So there you go. Uh, the book review this time around is a book called The Fourth Turning. It's written by two gents, uh, Strauss and Howe. Strauss and Howe. A little bit of background on this book, because I, I need to contextualize it a bit. Many years ago, it was probably over 20 years ago, this book was given to me by a parishioner. Someone said, hey, consider this, and, and uh, I love it. I always appreciate it when people give me books. That's a fun thing for them to do. But uh, sometimes they can give me books faster than I can read them. And this uh, book, for whatever reason, wound up on my shelf, right? So it's, there it sat for a long, long time. And um, last year, I, I had a vague notion of what it was about. Last year sometime, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to check that out. I may have perused it or, or glanced at it when I first got it. But when this last um, uh, year or so started going as crazy town as it did, I thought, I think I need to read The Fourth Turning. So I started it, and the authors are not Christians, and there's a little bit, there was a little bit too much of wisdom from all over in it. And so I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I, I read a little bit and put it down. And then this year, when things got zooier still, I thought, no, I'm, I'm, so I made a third run at it and went through it and finished it. And this is a very interesting book, and I commend it to you. Let me sort of tell you what, encourage you how it edified me. Uh, and what I would recommend you do. If you zoom in and examine all the details, uh, you're going to find plenty to disagree with and plenty of predictions that didn't come to pass and so on. But if you zoom out and look at the macro picture that they're suggesting, I think it's compelling. So the book was written in 1997. The book was written in 1997. And they, uh, they postulate that human societies, and they're, they're particularly focused on Anglo-American culture, but they, they say this applies elsewhere, fall in increments of 80-year 80, 80 lifespans. And this is approximately the length of a fairly uh, long-lived human being, 80 years plus or minus. So if you take, uh, and it could go up to 100, but let's say take 80 years as the increment. 
which uh, the ancient Romans called a seculum. Okay, this is a seculum. Now, uh, what they do is they divide the seculum into four 20-year pieces. This is a piece. This is a pie, and they cut it into four pieces. And the first, uh, the first piece, the first portion of the seculum is sort of the uh, the afterglow of. Uh, well, this will make sense in a minute. There was a previous crisis, and the heroes that prevailed through the crisis are the people running the show in the first twenty years. Then after that is an awakening. Another the second twenty year slot is an awakening, and the third twenty year slot they call an unraveling, and then a fourth, the fourth 20-year slot is the crisis, okay? So, there's an age of heroes, there's an age, there's the coming of age, an awakening, then there is a, an unraveling, and there is a crisis. But so, for example, they, they predicted when they wrote this in 1997 that there would be a crisis in, they estimated, around 2008. And you you all remember that 2008 was uh, when the the housing crisis hit, and there was a you know big problem, and a lot of our a lot of our current problems are cascading downstream from that. So if you look at American history, and this will this will make sense the the more you zoom out. If you go from where we are, they they argue that our they would argue that our current period, what we're in now here, 2021, is we're right. Uh, near the end of a crisis, uh, the the crisis period. The previous crisis was the Second World War. The previous crisis was the Second World War. And then the men who won that war came home from the war, heroes, having um, fought and defeated the bad guys. And they, from 1945, you know, ran the show from 1945 down to uh, the assassination of JFK in 1963, just about 20 years later. So my generation, the boomers, were all born during that post-war heyday. Right? That's when America was on, the, on top of its game. And, um, and then in 64, they had what, the, uh, what they call the awakening. This was the, um, the boomer generation had been born in the previous thing, were coming of age. And you had the Summer of Love, and you had Woodstock, and you had Elvis, and you had the Beatles, and you had Flower Power, and you had all of that stuff. So, the boomer generation coming of age in The Awakening. Oh, don't, you know, we had Dylan. Don't forget Dylan. Then that goes from 64 down to 84. So, the late 80s and the 90s would be the unraveling. Things start to get a little bit tattered. Things start to go bleh. And then the fourth is the crisis. And we've had uh, one staggering crisis after another in this period. And the good news, if it's an 80-year, if this is an 80-year seculum, there's another five years to go, roughly. Now, if you take this one seculum, this goes back to the Second World War. If you go from the Second World War back to, you know, the previous seculum, the previous crisis would have been the American War between the states. If you take 80 years back from that, the previous one would have been the American Revolution. Uh, they mentioned that they can detect this pattern going back to the 1500s in England. And what it boils down to is, I'll, I'll just finish with this. It's, it's a 
It's a fascinating book, a lot of interesting predictions, a lot of interesting descriptions. But what is it that makes it possible to make a millennial joke? Why is it that certain age cohorts have personalities? So, in the aftermath of the Second World War, my generation, the boomers, were born. Then, then in the generation after that, my kids, Gen X, were born. Then the 20-year, uh, in the 20-year cohort after that, the millennials were born. And then Gen Y. Why is it possible for us to talk about millennials or to talk about boomers? Well, because age co- cohorts really do have personalities. And they really do feed off of one another, and they do really uh, result in predictable responses, predictable patterns. The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe is a fascinating read in this regard.